our foster care system is shattered. And this podcast is about how we as a community can come together to bring about change, change in the system and changing the lives of children in foster care. Hi, my name is Rob Shear. I'm the founder of a national charity called Comfort Cases. I'm an advocate for children in foster care. I'm a public speaker. I'm an author of a forever family, but most important, I'm a dad to five of the most amazing kids. Welcome to the Fostering Change podcast. Well, here we are again, another episode of Fostering Change. You know, I've said this probably every week that the guests that we have had on our show have truly educated me in ways that I never thought. You know, I was talking to my one of my sons last night and I was telling him about how, you know, dad's 55 almost. And, you know, I always thought where you can't teach old dog new tricks, but I have learned through this podcast experience that everybody can learn something at any given time. And that's exactly what my friend Garen has done. Garen has written a new book called You Will Always Be White to Me. Um, I will have to tell you, I have not read a book this thick in a very long time, um, including my own memoir. But I was excited to be a part of reading this book. I'm excited that this book is getting ready to be available for everyone to read it. And by the way, Garen, before before we get started, I will have to tell you, this book truly, um, as a, an adopted dad, um, as a, someone who raised children of color, um, I think that this book does more than just for adopted dads, um, um, but really shows how someone goes through life with so many different changes. So the first thing I want to know, my friend, is why? Thank you for having me, man. I really appreciate it. It's so nice to see you. Um, why did I write this book? It's been an idea for so long, over a decade. Um, in my 20s, people, especially after I came to the United States, uh, people said, you know, you've got to write your story. This is not something we hear about often. And I think many people would understand that like <laughs> to write a memoir in your 20s, it feels so young. My thing was, who wants to read a memoir by someone in their 20s? Um, and, and for me personally, I had a lot more that I wanted to, to do in my life. You know, it felt very like I was in transition. Um, and then uh, cut to many years later, and around the time that Colin Kaepernick became the, the name and the face of every news cycle. And there was this very robust conversation happening in the country uh, on which, during which people took very uh, you know, different sides about whether he should be kneeling or whether he should not. One thing that I found incredibly interesting about that was that in almost no TV or, you know, online new media article, did it mention that he has white parents, that he was adopted. Um, and I went and I started asking my friends, do, do you know that Colin Kaepernick was adopted? And people on both sides had no idea. And I thought that was a really fascinating thing to omit because I think, and I'm sure you're, well, I would imagine your kids might say the same. And I know you have teenagers now, so I'm sure those conversations are beginning raw. Is that when you are a brown or black kid being raised by white parents, you exist in the world in one very specific way as a child. And then you sort of get used to the privilege that comes with that. 
And then you become an adult and you get, you're moving to the world by yourself. And it, to a certain degree, you're walking around still imagining that that privilege exists. And it doesn't. And it shouldn't, really. But you're treated differently. And I thought that he had, if someone had talked more to Colin Kaepernick at that time about that, I, that's the interview I would have wanted to watch about what that looks like and why he arrived at his decision um, based upon all that. So, so, so you, you know, I, I know your husband, Jamie, and who, by the way, is white, um, yeah. and you are a person of, of color, whether that, you know, you want to call yourself brown, what do you want to call you're a person of color. You are raising two children, one who is, um, I would consider black, just like one of my children. And when I, one, I would consider brown, just like one of my children. How do you, knowing what you know now after writing this memoir, because you made a comment, and I talk about this quite often, you know, when I walk into Macy's or to Nordstrom's, um, no one looks at me differently. You know, what they want to know is, oh, I wonder if he has a Nordstrom's credit card. And I wonder what his credit limit is, <laughs> you know? And, and then when I see my son, Makai, who is 6'1", um, you know, wears a hoodie, and I see him walk in, and I look at people, stare at him, and, you know, I, I see where my white privilege has come in for myself. How are you now knowing all of this, raising your boys? Well, it's a wonderful question. I mean, I, I feel I've had enough life experience and experiences both in Africa, Europe, the Middle East, um, and the United States to understand how, how race is, how, how you might be treated in specific situations, both negatively and positively. To your question, I'm more concerned about my white husband seeing the discrimination of his children for the first time. Our kids are, are much younger than your kids. You know, our kids are, are three and eight. Um, and right now they're cute. Uh, and, but as you know, I have two boys as, as black men uh, transition uh, into young adulthood, um, sorry, preteens, teenagers, and then young adulthood. It takes on a very different, society sees them very differently. So I have had conversations with my husband saying, you know, I really need, I really need you and I really want you to prepare for this. And I want to give you one example. We live in a really friendly neighborhood. Um, unfortunately, my son's the only black kid as of now. Well, both of them are the only two black children in the neighborhood. But, you know, we live in Fort Lauderdale and anyone that's been to Lauderdale knows that there are mangoes everywhere dropping all over the road, you know, kind of in people's yards. And my husband, um, earlier, you know, in, in once after moving here, I would notice as we were going through a walk, the kids would see mangoes drop into people's front yards that were clearly not going to be used. And he, he would be like, yeah, you can grab a couple. You know, people are friendly. People know you guys around here. And I just stopped there and I said, you know, Jamie, I have to tell you, like, no force on earth would have me walking into somebody's front yard to take fruit from their yard and then get back on the road and walk down to my house. I just know as a brown guy, that's not, that's not an okay choice. And you are teaching our young you know, brown and black children that this is like a norm, that this is okay. And right now it probably is. But when they are 13 and doing that, somebody might shoot them. Yeah. And he looked at me and said like, I've never considered this. You know, when I grew up, we just walked through people's yards if fruit had fallen down the trees and taken. And I said that this is just one very small example of how complex this issue is. Um, and so we're still working through all that. 
who's a very enlightened guy, extremely well-bred and very well-traveled. But he grew up in a predominantly white area. And I think sometimes your childhood just doesn't teach you as a white person what you need to understand if you're raising black children. Um, and that's why we should all, all of us, regardless of color, sexual orientation, gender, whatever, learn from the experiences of others. I agree. I agree with you 100%. And I learned so much in your book about experiences. And by the way, you have done a hell of a lot at your young age. But I was like, you know, I have to agree with you. I remember when one of my children, probably about the age of nine, wanted to be a police officer for Halloween. And at first we were okay with it. But then when we went to to the costume store, and as he was gathering the costume, there was a gun and he really wanted the gun and it was a toy gun it was a typical police officer but we stood in this 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 costume store and i was adamant why he could not have this costume and my husband much like your husband grew up in a very dominant white neighborhood could not understand why we were not allowing our 10 year old to be a police officer who we should respect and looked up to but i also had to re reassure him that a boy of color carrying a gun even as dressed up as a police officer could have a target on their back you know and and that to me is something that as society you know we we have to we have to change now you grew up in so many different places i mean you were raised in south africa and hawaii you were in gambia you were in jamaica louisiana louisiana story you and i are gonna talk about <laughs> but you were also raised i i i know your i know your siblings i i know them because you and i have been friends for years um it, was it easier because you had siblings? Uh, it, you know, I mean, you and your sister look identical. Yeah, it was. I mean, and, and that's that's kind of amazing because I'm I was adopted from Sri Lanka and she was adopted from the Philippines. But it was much easier to go through the experience of being an adopted kid living with white parents in Africa, in the Middle East, you know, all over, having another uh, sibling who was adopted. It's actually something I never really thought about until I was an adult, um, how normalized that made it in our family. How, knowing that and hearing her stories, you know, her story of how she arrived in my parents' arms, how they found her, um, it made, as the second child, my story just seemed like, yeah, that's how, that's, isn't this how this happens? You know, and then of course, when we moved to South Africa and they thought they could not have a child naturally, they had my little brother who's blonde hair and brown eyes, you know? So it, so at that time it was like, oh, it happens this way too. And it was, yeah, a total like shakeup of our family, but in the best way. Um, I do think it would have been, and I always say, I think it would have been extremely difficult to be adopted from Sri Lanka and then flown directly to New Orleans and then had to have grown up on Bernie's Drive. Many readers will come to know Bernie's Drive in, in Louisiana, Louisiana. Um, in this very small, exclusively white town, as the only brown kid, that would have been hard. But we were, you know, the two of us, brown kids growing up in Africa or the Middle East or wherever. Um, my parents were actually minority. And, you know, add to that, we had this life that is, I'm always sort of shy to even talk about it here in America. But, you know, when you grow up overseas, usually people oftentimes who are living that life, that diplomatic international sort of life, have housekeepers and drivers and gardeners and all of our um, these wonderful people that lived in our home, I mean, they, they were also the same color as us. 
So really, if anyone was a minority in our house, it was my parents. And that was very different for us. So, so what got your parents to be overseas? Now, I know your mom's a sex ed teacher. So, I mean, what, what actually, I mean, you know, that moment that you're living overseas and you have the housekeepers and you have the drivers and, and I have friends who live overseas, they have the same situation. It's very typical um, in, you know, depending on what level in the overseas and all of a sudden you come to Louisiana. Um, I'm assuming you did not have all the staff in Louisiana that you had when you were living, you know, in South Africa. Correct. And so Louisiana, you know, at the very beginning of my life, it was this place we heard about, Louisiana, all right, my parents are from there, but I'm not really from there. But every summer we travel back. It is Louisiana is where I became an American citizen. It was my introduction to the United States. Um, so initially traveling, traveling back each year, you know, there was... It, it, it felt like a different country. And I always say like, it really was a different country to me though, because I was living in South Africa. Um, and yes, that was just summer business. Now in 1998, we lived there for one year and we didn't have any of the kind of um, staff in our home. And I don't think we thought much of it because no one else did there either. It was, I understood in America, that's not how people live. And uh, certainly we were living five houses down from my grandparents and that's not how they were living. So it was different, but it was different in the way that every country was different, right? Each time we landed at a new airport, it was like, here's a, here's a window into an entirely different life world. You know, I, I need to know, so, so I, you're back and forth, back and forth, let's say, yeah. um, and you see where our country sits today. You um, have raised your boys or raising your boys. One of your boys you raised in the District of Columbia before you you and your husband moved to Florida. So there was a huge difference there. Um, and now all of a sudden, do, how do you feel that we're going as a country? Oh, wow, Rob. I mean, you know, the first time I heard this quote, I believe it was Hillary Clinton quoting Winston Churchill. She said, the United States always gets around to doing the right thing after they've tried everything else. And I sort of feel that's how the US is. It's like, we make, we, progress is there. It certainly is, but it's so slow moving in a way. Um, for a country that has the potential, the capacity to move fast, it's so slow moving on environmental science, on race issues, um, you know, on gender equality, sexuality. Why does it take us so long when Europe, you know, has been able to like transform and transform and transform? <sighs> the last four years were hard. You know, I think anyone reading my memoir, obviously within, you know, the first couple pages will get the, you know, no, I'm not a Trump fan. And uh, it was hard to watch the country kind of like open up this, or what I felt was a vocalizing of racism again, that's, that Trump made it okay for many people to do, to, to sort of verbalize how they felt. To a certain extent, at least you're aware of like the populace, you know, that, that, that there is this segment of the population that does feel this way. I just wish that things would get better faster. Um, someone like you having this podcast, I mean, listen, you're an extraordinary person and the amount of the platform that you have and the outreach that you do, I mean, it enables these conversations to take place. But the problem is, I wonder how many people that feel the way I just described would ever be watching this interview. And to some degree, that is reinforced by a 24-hour news cycle 
where if you're a Fox News watcher, you can watch Fox News all day long in your house and have your, your, your racist beliefs reinforced. If you're MSNBC, super left, you can watch MSNBC all day long and have your super left ideas reinforced. It's a struggle, and I think it's going to take a long time to get to a place where we are sort of in a more moderate and, 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 and zone where more people are in the middle. No, I agree. I agree. And it's probably one of the reasons why we're going to start doing fostering change more than once a week, because I truly believe that talking about things is how we educate each other. You know, I got so many more questions about, you know, your book, you'll always be white to me. Um, first of all, love the cover. Um, think you did a great job on the cover. Um, but I, I have a question as soon as we get back. Listen, everyone, we got to take a quick break. Um, we want to thank our sponsors. But I also want to thank everybody that has um, shared our podcast. Um, those of you who have been sending me emails to fosteringchange at comfortcases.org, asking your questions, thinking about guests that you would like to be on. You know, when I started this podcast over almost two years ago, I started it because I wanted to talk about foster care and adoption. But I've learned what I want to talk about is change, is change and how each and every one of us have that opportunity. So I'm asking each and every one of you to do me a big favor, whether you're listening to this on you know, Apple or Google or Spotify, share the podcast, share the podcast because you never know who you're going to impact. And then if you're following us on our YouTube channel and you have subscribed, please leave a comment. You know, We wanna know how you're doing, good and bad. So we'll be right back. This episode of Fostering Change is sponsored by Comfort Cases, a national nonprofit that is inspiring our communities to bring dignity and hope to youth in foster care. You know, for just $10 a month, you can support the Comfort Cases mission to eliminate trash bags from the foster care system. For every $10 donated, a Comfort XL duffel bag will be given to a child entering foster care. Please help us be part of the change. Go to comfortcases.org and see how you can help a child entering our foster care system. So, you know, we are so excited to be part two of this amazing interview with my friend, Garen, who has written, You Will Always Be White to Me. You know, I remember when you reached out to me about this book, and um, I was really excited about it as well. Um, and so I, you know, because I travel so much, I read most of my books on my Kindle, um, you know, because I'm in and out of airports. But I actually wanted to touch this book. I wanted to feel this book. I absolutely love, love, love this book. And I'm so impressed with how raw you are in the book. You know, I hear that when people read my book, A Forever Family, um, but I read a lot of memoirs. And um, I mean, you can see next to my desk, I read a lot of memoirs. And most time people sugarcoat things and they really are not all into telling everything, but you did. And I want to talk about your mom. You know, um, you um, you had a special relationship with your mother. Yes. You know, and knowing that your mother has passed, um, you know, you, I, I still, you know, whenever on social media, and by the way, guys, 
if you if you're not following my friend on social media, you've got to follow him. You've got to find him um, because some of the little tidbits that I get out of you on social media, you have no idea how it's made me relook at something. Um, and so, you know, with your mom being a sex ed teacher in South Africa, um, it was during a time when that was just something that wasn't talked about. Except for in my house. Yes. Um, you know, it's, it's funny. It's like, I think, I think this is true of all the kids. You grew up in whatever your parents' profession is, you just think, like, this not everyone's parents do that? <laughs> you know, um, there's a great show on Netflix called Sex Education, where the kid's mom is a sex, ed, a sex therapist. And I, when I watched it, I just related so much because I was like, yeah, this is how, like, this is kind of how it was to some degree. Nikki Wade, that's my mom's name. And, and yes, yeah, she, she, unfortunately, she died in, in 2001. Wow. Um, but when we were living in South Africa, she was uh, a sex ed teacher, uh, teaching young South Africans about um, biology and also, you know, safe sex practices at the time when HIV and AIDS was, was kind of coming to, to uh, prominence and, and being spoken about. It's, I write in the book that I knew the word sex before I ever knew the word God or religion. Um, we were not a religious household. And... Um, I don't even remember the first time we talked about sex because it was just always was. They made it very clear early on what sex was, uh, that they had sex, <laughs> that one, you know, one day we would have sex. Um, and and it, it was very, I think, liberating. I, I talked to a lot of people, straight and gay, as adults who had a lot of shame around sex. Um, I, I don't, I never have. And um, I think it's because of the way, because of having your mom's sex ed teacher, it's just, it's just like talked about at the dinner table, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. I, I learned as I got older that that was certainly not everyone else's experience. Um, yeah, that's not everybody else's experience. And that is not the dinner conversation right, that right. the majority of people have. But do you feel that you're raising your boys differently than your neighbors because of the experience of what your mother being a sex ed teacher? Oh, absolutely. Um, our son is eight, and oldest son is eight, Mateo, and he already knows about sex. Um, when he started asking me, uh, you know, about reproduction and, and, and yes, I just sat him down and said, listen, this is how it is, and kind of walked him through it. Uh, I, I feel I am very similar to my mom, and I, I also want them to have correct information. I think there's this thing, like, you don't have the information, and then, you know, that's how, like, teen pregnancies happen often and people don't really know what they're doing and, and you can't make informed decisions without knowing what, you know, what, what's going on. So um, definitely. And we, we have conversations even now with our neighbors, um, oftentimes straight couples who are like very hesitant to talk about sex. I think this is a, also a very American thing. Uh, having grown up around the world, um, I'm going to go to Europe. Like I find Western Europe to be far more progressive on this issue. I think we all know that. Um, and I also wrote about in the memoir about how, like, as a 12 year old, my mom walked just through the red light district in Amsterdam and was like, these women that you see in the windows are working. They're, they are prostitutes. And it's, you know, here in Holland, it is legal. And that's a wonderful thing because they now have access to, to STD checks and they are protected. Um, they're not doing it in like back alleys where they can be harmed. Um, this is a work and, you know, this is a job. And, you know, I, I still today say like sex work is work. Don't shame these people. Also, for me personally, and I think, well, listen, it's everybody. Um, if you're watching porn, 
don't shame people who act in porn. I don't get it. Why would you be a consumer of something and then shame the people that you're watching? It just never made sense to me. Um, I don't think it makes sense to a lot of people, my friend. So, but, you know, there are those few who want to say that it shouldn't happen, but there are also those ones that I would love to see their browser on their phone. You know, there was a lot of serious issues that you actually wrote in You're Always Be White to Me. You know, gun violence, racial discrimination. You actually even wrote about Al-Qaeda. You wrote about domestic abuse. Um, I, I really want to know... Out of all of those topics, what was one of the hardest things that you wrote about? Gun violence. I was held up for the first time by a military officer um, with a machine gun when I was when I was seven, eight. It even like kind of it's weird to even speak about sometimes. Um, and I don't think most kids have that uh, interaction. It was terrifying. Um, as a young kid, it, I was by myself. I remember, I still vividly can remember the um, barrel of the gun moving across my face. And um, it was during a military takeover in the Gambia. Um, and then throughout the years, you know, one of my friends, our family friends was killed by Al Qaeda operatives and um, with a gun. Uh, and there's just been so many instances. And then I come to the United States in 2004 and we have, you know, there's many school shootings since Columbine. We have Pulse. Um, you know, we, I moved down to Lauderdale and we have the uh, Parkland massacre at, at, the, um, at the high school. And, uh, and then I, I, I'm an air traffic controller. Um, and I was first at Washington Tower where, when I was at Washington Tower, I was so prepped for gun violence for, um, and I was trained by, by the uh, security services in DCA how to respond in that situation. When we moved down to sunny, beachy Lauderdale, I was like, oh man, this is gonna be, this is gonna be great and fun and life's kind of like slow and easy. And um, you know, within, I believe it was the first uh, year of me working as a controller at Fort Lauderdale Tower, we have a shooting in the airport um, where I walk up the stairs into the tower uh, off my break, coming to coming in to, uh, to start controlling. And uh, all I'm hearing on the phone is the supervisor saying, okay, multiple casualties, Delta Terminal. Um, you guys probably all know the, the, the young man that came from um, Anchorage um, and I believe it's Anchorage, yes, and landed in Lauderdale and you know, came through baggage claim, loaded up his gun and, and killed a bunch of people. I killed people and harmed people and really terrorized an entire community. This stuff continues and nothing's done about it. Um, you know, writing about that, when you say what was the hardest, writing about that and to see over 30 years that not much has changed, that's difficult. Yeah. And I don't know when this country is going to like wake up and go. Um, I don't know what yeah. it takes. I mean, I have to agree with you. And, you know, the fact is, I'm going to be 55 this year. And I, when I was a kid in elementary school, middle school, high school, I, I never heard of a gun shooting in school. It just didn't happen. And I don't know where we turn the tides, but there's something. Um, 
Garen, there is something that we have to do and we have to do it sooner than later. And, you know, it's like you, you know, it being a dad of, of two kids of color, it's like, where do they, I mean, right now I see pictures of your kids and I'm like, oh my gosh, they're so adorable. And I see pictures of my children and I think they're adorable. But then I think, when did society start getting scared of them? You know, when did they start, when did society stop walking, when they started walking across the street to cross the street because of the color of their skin? And, you know, that leads me to one of my last questions I have for you, my friend. I want to know how you came up. Well, first of all, I have two questions. Number one, if the pandemic had not have happened, would you have written the book um, as soon as you had? Absolutely. Categorically, no. Um, no. Yeah, no, because I had I had just been in South Africa. We were adopting our youngest son, flew back on March 13th, landed in the United States and realized, you know, it was it was that weekend when the United States was like, OK, everyone quarantined. This is for real. Uh, we've had this information since January, but we're only doing something about it now. Trump administration. And uh, and let's, you know, let's buckle down. And because we had been at the bottom of Africa, it wasn't really so much a reality for us there. Um, now, of course, that has all changed. So when we landed back, um, I had a year and four months off from the tower because I'm a controller that has asthma. And they said, if you're a controller that has asthma, stay home. I'm super fortunate. I don't want anyone watching this to think like somehow I juggle two kids and a marriage and an air traffic control career and I just happen to write books at night. I mean, let's be realistic. I have a nanny, I have a husband that's super supportive. I had a year off from work. And it allowed me to write this book. And my husband, James Siriano, some of you probably know him, he actually came to me and said, Garen, if you don't write your memoir now, you will never write this memoir. Don't you like, don't you hate it when your husband's right? He's written way too many times, my friend. You know, (laughs) and by the way, I love your husband's books. I your husband has signed some books for me. They're sitting on my nightstand. But then now my question is, um, you'll always be white to me. Is that society? Is that you? Or is that your family? Excellent question. Um, I'm not giving it away. I haven't in any interview I've done so far because I want people, here's why, I want people to move through the memoir and be asking themselves that question. Is it him? Is it a parent? Is it a lover? Is it a teacher? Is it my commentary on society? Is society's commentary on me? Um, it's interesting, right before this book came out, there was some uh, uh, interview I did on the West Coast <clears throat> in um, Oregon. And as, as, as that came out, there was this, uh, someone sent me this link online to this comment that someone I didn't know had made, uh, the person was uh, not a brown or black person and said, um, how ridiculous. Imagine if I had written a book that was titled, You'll Always Be Black to Me. Everyone would hate me and no one would read it. And I thought, hmm. And then it listed all these comments, people jumping on their side, people saying like, you shouldn't say, you know, and it was, it was very interesting for me to read. First of all, everyone's entitled to their opinion. I certainly want anyone who feels that, they should be able to voice it. I also think you should read the book because it might surprise you. It might not be what you think it is. Yeah. No, I agree with you. I agree with you. And what a great teaser. What a great teaser. Listen, you know what? It is 
Always a pleasure to talk with you. I'm so proud that I get to call you my friend. You know, I tell people this isn't something where I get to have a guest on my podcast and it's all, I mean, I literally consider you and Jamie and the boys our friends. And um, I want you to know how much we love you, how proud I am of you. And I want everyone, please, 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 please purchase this book. You know, um, it's come. It's coming out right here at the summertime. And we all know that we're still like trying to figure out what to do during the summer. Lay by the beach, read it. You are going to love it. But then this is what I want you to do. Once you've read it, I want you to email me. Email me at fosteringchangecomfortcases.org. And I want you to tell me from what I experience why the title is the title. Garen, thank you so much. Um, we will have our links of where you can pick up this amazing book. Please do us a big favor. Make sure you share this podcast. Subscribe to us on our YouTube channel. Make sure you talk about the change because each and every one of us are different and you have no idea how we compact, impact each other. So until we meet again, everybody continue to be part of the change a good human. That's all we can ask. Take care, everyone. I would like to thank all of you for listening to the Fostering Change podcast. You can subscribe on all of your favorite podcast streaming platforms, including Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Make sure you follow Comfort Cases on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Twitter at Comfort Cases. Check out the Fostering Change blog at comfortcases.org. And I know some of you have a question, and I know some of you would love to be a guest. Please personally reach out to me at fosteringchange at comfortcases.org. That's fosteringchange at comfortcases.org. Then do me a big favor. Please help spread the word. Share this podcast. Share it with your friends and your family. Remember, I say this quite often, we're all part of the same community. And that community, it's not our zip code, but our human race. Let's all make a difference.